This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. For Berkeley law professor and anthropologist Kiara Bridges, working in reproductive justice runs in the family. My uncle, his name is James Bridges, and he was one of the first Black obstetricians in Miami, Florida. He graduated from medical school in 1964, which was at the time that the government had just passed the Medicaid, Medicare bills. And Medicare um, required that in order to receive federal funds, hospitals couldn't discriminate on the basis of race. And so that meant that hospitals couldn't discriminate against my uncle on the basis of race. So he was one of the first Black obstetricians who um, was permitted to train um, to do his residency in one of the biggest hospitals in Miami. And because he, you know, his life's work was around pregnancy and delivering babies, I became fascinated with pregnancy and babies, but I knew that I didn't want to work with it in the way that he did. <laughs> um, I didn't want to be, you know, an obstetrician, but I still found pregnancy fascinating. So I, I you know, found, figured out another way to, to study pregnancy and to work with pregnant people. Bridges' research focuses on race, class, and reproductive rights. She teaches several courses at Berkeley Law, including criminal law, family law, and reproductive rights and justice. So, you know, I wear two hats. So I have a JD and I also have a PhD in anthropology. And um, when, I'm, when I'm wearing my legal hat, when I'm wearing my JD hat, I really do kind of standard, you know, legal academic kind of work. So, you know, I write law review articles, I examine laws, I examine policies, I talk about the consequences of, of you know, laws and policies and, you know, things of that nature. Um, but when I'm wearing my anthropology hat, that's when I have an opportunity to work with pregnant people, like actual living, breathing pregnant people. Um, my first book um, is called Reproducing Race, and that was an ethnography of an obstetrics clinic in, in Manhattan. I called the, the clinic Alpha Hospital in order to give it some degree of anonymity. But that was just a study of, of what it's like to be pregnant and poor and you know, receiving Medicaid and having to rely on, you know, these public health bureaucracies in order to have, you know, a healthy pregnancy and give birth to a, you know, a healthy baby. And, you know, I was very interested in how our discourses around race and our discourses around class and our discourses around, you know, pregnancy and, you know, and gender and, and bodies and, you know, how they all intersected to just kind of like make a mess of all of our aspirations around autonomy and dignity. I remember in a talk that you gave, you mentioned that there's a difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Can you explain what the difference is? Sure. Um, so reproductive rights, and, and there's nothing inherent about reproductive rights, um, reproductive rights coming to mean what it has come to mean. But reproductive rights tends to refer to a narrow set of, of legal rights, and that's, you know, the right to an abortion. 
and and, and again legal rights so rep reproductive rights tends to be about you know how do we vindicate this right to an abortion you know what sort of laws needed to be you know need to be passed or what sort of decision do we need handed down from the supreme court in order to protect you know this right to an abortion um and reproductive justice is broader than reproductive rights it kind of i, I describe it as picking up where reproductive rights leaves off so reproductive justice is much more concerned about it's very much concerned about abortion rights because abortion is such an important tool for people with a capacity for pregnancy to control the content and trajectory of their lives. So reproductive justice understands the importance of abortion rights, but it also understands that abortion is just a small element and a universe of other rights and abilities that people with a capacity for pregnancy need. So um, reproductive justice understands that the right to not become pregnant is incredibly important, but the right to become pregnant is, is equally important, right? So we need to be protected against forced sterilizations. Uh, we need to be protected against environmental degradation that will you know, render us incapable of pregnancy um, and reproductive justice also understands that we need the right to parent the children that we birth and so you know being able to give birth to a child is, is wonderful when when it's wanted but we have a system um, in in place in the u.s that kind of strips parents of their children you know largely because their parents are poor and so it's devastating to to lose custody of one's child, you know, due to poverty or due, you know due to a state actor, you know, not thinking that you're a competent parent. And so reproductive justice is, you know, that is as important as the right to not become pregnant in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what reproductive justice, rights and justice, has looked like? in this country going back maybe a hundred years like what is it what did it look like that's a big question because when, when you think about all of the issues that reproductive justice cares about you know different things were happening at different times over the course of you know the, the country's history You know, we had the eugenics movement. Um, I, mean, I mean, we can go before that and talk about chattel slavery with, you know, black people who were enslaved having no um, ability to control whether they would become a parent, um, whether they would become pregnant, um, whether they would be able to keep the child that they, they birthed. And so there were, you know, dramatic, uh, spectacular reproductive injustices happening then. We can sort of talk about the eugenics movement, um, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, you know, with government actors and other, you know, powerful private actors deciding that some people were just like not competent people and so therefore shouldn't be able to, to become parents and so we had forced sterilizations as a matter of like you know public health as a matter of, of public policy people were deemed incompetent or inadequate according to the law for all sorts of reasons says bridges but at the core it was most often because they were poor 
or were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. This meant that people who were considered what Bridges calls marginally white, which included people from places like Greece and Italy and Ireland, were also prohibited from having children. So only the racially and economically privileged few, she says, were actually deemed capable or competent enough to reproduce. We have a famous case called Buck versus Bell. Um, it was decided in the early 1920s. In that case, the Supreme Court upheld uh, the forced sterilization of, of a woman named Carrie Buck. And Carrie Buck had been institutionalized. She was in a hospital um, or an institution for people, uh, they called them imbeciles. Also in that, in that institution were epileptics. Um, it was just like a, like a, you know, true motley crew of folks who were deemed inadequate. And it turns out that she actually didn't have a cognitive disability. I mean, so first of all, even if she did have an intellectual disability, she ought not to have been sterilized without her consent. But she actually, there's no evidence that she actually was intellectually disabled. It turns out she was just poor. Um, and she had been, um, she was a survivor of sexual assault. And so the child that she gave birth to, they, you know, they said, oh, she's an unwed mother. That means that she's kind of immoral and, again, inadequate. But her child is actually the product of a sexual assault. And so, you know, Buffy Bell is a famous case because the Supreme Court signed off on it. It said, you know, eugenic sterilization was perfectly consistent with the Constitution. Another moment in history, says Bridges, is when Roe v. Wade was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973. It was a landmark decision that ruled that the U.S. Constitution protects a pregnant person's right to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. It's been in the news a lot recently, as most of us probably know, because the Supreme Court seems poised to overturn it. And when it is overturned, the most vulnerable people will suffer the most, says Bridges, like they did before Roe v. Wade. I think a misconception that people might have is that, you know, prior to the legalization of abortion or the protection of abortion through the Supreme Court's finding of a constitutional right, was that everybody was like using dangerous methods for terminating pregnancies, you know, like coat hangers and back alley abortionists. And that's certainly true, but not for everyone. Um, folks with class privilege have always been able to safely terminate a pregnancy, if not legally, you know, in a state where it's illegal, it's illegal. But people with, with privilege have always been able to safely terminate pregnancies. So even if a person lived in a state that had criminalized abortion, people were, you know, able to find an obstetrician, um, a gynecologist who, you know, they knew who they could pay, who could terminate the, the pregnancies safely. The back alleys, the coat hangers, those were the methods used by poor people. Um, those were you know, the methods used by marginalized people who didn't have the social capital or actually, you know, financial wherewithal to pay to have, uh, you know, a safe abortion. And I mention that because there's nothing, nothing suggests that things will be different when, when Roe v. Wade um, is, is eviscerated by the Supreme Court. Nothing suggests that uh, people with privilege will 
not be able to travel to a state where abortion is still, you know, legal. Um, right now, you know, Texas has allowed SBA to be in place since September 1. Folks with privilege are traveling, you know, they're going to Oklahoma, they're going to Kansas, they're coming to California, they're going as far as New York, right, in order to terminate their pregnancy safely. If Roe falls, when Roe falls, people will always be able to travel, you know, they'll go to Europe, they'll go to Canada. And they will, you know, always be able to find someone who will safely terminate a pregnancy for them. Those who will be stuck in the back alleys, those who will be, you know, relying on coat hangers, and also those who will be self-managing abortions, you know, through medication abortion, despite the criminal law, like those are going to be the most vulnerable, the poor people, young people, people with disabilities, undocumented people, um, people of color. So we just we will be the past will be present um, when Roe falls. Mm-hmm. So you say when it's just pretty it's like pretty certain. I mean, I can count <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you can count to five, you, you know, and this was, you know, all intentional. It's not like, oh, my God, it turns out that the Supreme Court <laughs> um, is stacked so that, you know, Roe is, is in danger. I mean, that's, you know, people have run on that platform, like Trump ran on, you know, his campaign promise was if he was elected, he would appoint people to the Supreme Court who would be willing to overturn Roe. He appointed Gorsuch, seems poised over, you know, there's a vote in favor of overturning Roe right there. Kavanaugh, oral arguments seemed pretty receptive to um, overturning Roe. And then, of course, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, um, all signs point towards her, you know, being a, a vote, you know, for overturning Roe. You add that to John Roberts, you add that to Alito, oh, of course, Clarence Thomas. So the question is not, you know, whether they have enough votes. The question really is whether John Roberts is going to vote with the conservatives or if he's going to vote with the liberals. But even, you know, no matter how he votes, um, it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. So when it is overturned, will it will it criminalize abortion throughout the entire country? So you can't go to any single state in the entire country to get an abortion? No. So if Roe um, is overturned, it will return to the states the ability to criminalize abortion or not. So we'll have a patchwork Right now, it seems that at least half of the states um, would criminalize abortion mm-hmm. and the other half would not. So, you know, it'll be illegal in Texas, but legal in California, illegal in Florida, but legal in New York. But I think that we're I think we're naive to believe like that that's the end goal, <laughs> like that that is what people have been fighting for this whole time. If one believes that a fetus is, a, you know, the moral equivalent of a baby, one cannot be satisfied with abortion being legal in some states. And so it would appear that if that is one's conviction, that one wouldn't rest until you, we've passed, uh, you know, some federal law that would make abortion illegal in the entire United States. The reversal of Roe v. Wade, says Bridges, won't be like a light switch going off, taking away abortion rights all at once. Instead, the lights have been dimming for quite some time. For example, immediately after Roe was decided, legislators in Congress 
started introducing bills to have fetuses recognized as constitutional persons. In 1980, just seven years after the decision in Roe, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funds from covering the cost of abortion procedures. And states have been passing laws that make it difficult, and in many cases impossible, to access an abortion. In sort of reproductive justice, reproductive rights circles, we call this incrementalism. People who have wanted to make to move abortion out of the reach of everyone have been taking kind of incremental steps, whittling away at the right until it's at a point now where you know it's it's easily kind of knocked over because there's not much left. And it likely won't stop at abortion rights, says Bridges. By saying that Roe v. Wade isn't good law, it suggests that. Several court cases that led to Roe v. Wade were also improper interpretations of the Constitution. It's just as a matter of constitutional law. So, you know, Roe v. Wade didn't fall out of the sky. <laughs> in, in 1973, the justices weren't like, you know what, we should make up a right to an abortion. Um, Roe v. Wade was actually part of a long line of cases dating back to the 1920s. You know, I can tell Meyer and, you know, and Pierce and Prince, um, these cases that um, interpreted the Constitution to protect a right to privacy, specifically around issues involving the family. So those cases held that, uh, that a parent has like a fundamental right to raise their kid in the way that they deem fit. And then in the 1960s, we had a case called Griswold versus Connecticut in which the Supreme Court said, well, actually, the right to privacy that we recognized way back in the 1920s, the right to privacy, the privacy around like family matters, that um, that kind of is broad enough to encompass the right to access contraception when you're married. <laughs> and, then, and then Eisenstadt versus Baird came along in 1972 and said, well, if you can access contraception when you're married, you can access contraception when you're unmarried. And then Roe happened in 1973, said that this right to uh, right to privacy around matters of involving the family was broad enough to encompass the right to not create a family in the first place, you know, the right to an abortion. Bridges says Griswold versus Connecticut, which struck down a state law prohibiting the use of contraceptives by married couples, is foundational to so many of our rights that we have today. If you look at the decisions protecting, recognizing LGBTQ rights, they're all based on Griswold. So Lawrence versus Texas uh, was decided, said that Texas, you can't make it a crime to engage in same-sex sexual contact. The Supreme Court cited Griswold for that proposition. Obergefell versus Hodges said that the Constitution protects the right to marry a person of the same sex. The Supreme Court cited both Lawrence versus Texas, but also Griswold. If Griswold's not good law, <laughs> then that means that Lawrence versus Texas isn't good law. It means that Obergefell versus Hodges isn't good law. So it means that, that proposing that the Constitution prevents states from criminalizing LGBTQ sexual activity proposing that the Constitution protects a right to marry a person of the same sex, then those are improper interpretations of the Constitution. Those rights fall next. 
Now, this isn't just a law professor going ham on a podcast. <laughs> In fact, um, the author of Texas SB8, which has made it impossible to get an abortion in Texas after six weeks, Jonathan Mitchell, in a brief to the court, he said precisely that. <laughs> um, he said, you know, when Roe falls, then Lawrence and Obergefell hang by a thread. So I think, I think we should be worried. <laughs> we should be worried, especially in light of the fact that the Supreme Court, as currently constituted, they don't seem to be interested in protecting the rights that, you know, historically vulnerable, marginalized people um, need um, in order to sort of be fully human in this country. What do you see that that needs to be changed in order for these rights not to be completely stripped away? this cascade like what needs to happen to to not only stop that cascade but build toward a better way of life for everybody yeah that's a uh, it's a good question it's a complicated question i think everybody should be in the streets right now <laughs> fighting for voting rights i think i don't think it's a coincidence at all that you know texas passed sba and texas also has the most restrictive voting laws in the country right now. SB8 is not representative of the people of Texas. SB8 is representative of the people who were able to cast votes and those are not marginalized people. I don't think we should sit idly by and let that kind of stuff happen um, because I think the, at least the most direct way to change law is through voting. We would we would be having we wouldn't be talking about the fall of Roe right now if Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016. So voting is incredibly important, at least when it comes to laws. So I think we all should vote, but in order for our votes to matter, we have to fight for like voting rights. Um, we have to make sure that people aren't gerrymandered um, out of representation. Bridges says that while there is a bill that passed the House that would codify Roe v. Wade into law, it's unlikely to pass the Senate. But to codify it into law would be something, definitely better than nothing. But she says we should be thinking bigger. You know, reproductive justice, the framework would be interested in, in expanding, right, and, and making sure, you know, everyone who needed this service, had access to it, but also everyone who wanted to become a parent could become a parent. Everybody who wanted to parent the children that they had could parent the children that they had. So it would be a series of, of, of bills that could protect what we have as well as expand, you know, beyond what we have right now. It's very kind of slogan-y to say, but we really do have to trust women. <laughs> like we really do have to just know that they know what's best for themselves, for their lives, for their families. And, and this is when I put my anthropologist hat on and I'm like, this is about cultural change. Like it's not about necessarily a change in the law. It'll be nice if laws existed 
that would enable us to express our our lives and in, in the in the different ways that we might express our lives. But I think that when we're talking about meaning and what the meanings that people attach to being a cis woman or having a uterus, we in order to change those meanings, so it's a cultural change, right? Although nobody knows when the Supreme Court will hand down its decision on abortion rights, Bridges expects that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, sending the country back in time. And we'll have to figure out how to work together to keep moving forward, to build a more just society while supporting the people who need it most. I'm Anne Bryce, and this is Berkeley Voices, a Berkeley News podcast from UC Berkeley's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. The illustration for this episode is by Neil Fries. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you like what we do, follow us and leave us a rating and a review. New episodes come out every other Friday. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.